Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Roundtable, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers and investors in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion that we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Now, here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome back to Top Traders Roundtable, a podcast series on managed futures. My name is Niels Kostrup-Larsen. I'm delighted to welcome you to today's conversation with industry leaders in managed futures, which is brought to you by CME Group. Today is all about consultants and the role they play in the alternative investment industry, and I'm joined by some of the best in the business. I'm pleased to welcome Chris Solars, Managing Director, Global Macro Hedge Fund Strategies at Cliffwater, Adam Duncan, Managing Director at Cambridge Associates, as well as Freeman Wood, who is a partner and head of North America at Mercer. First of all, welcome and thank you for joining me today for this conversation about managed futures and alternative investments in general. Before we jump into today's conversation, let's share with our listeners a short version of your investment journey and how you got to where you are today. Now, since we have among us a Guinness World Record holder, I thought I would come to you first, Chris. Tell us about your journey and please don't lead out, leave out why you today can call yourself a Guinness World Record holder. Okay, sure. Well, thank you for having me. I got started in the hedge fund industry in 2004. A couple of years prior, I was doing investment banking out of college. I started at a fund of funds for about eight years and I joined Cliffwater in 2011 on manager research. So over, over these years, I've seen over 2,000 different hedge funds. Earlier in my career, I was more of a generalist, but for the past 10 years almost, I have been focused on global macro strategies. And today at Cliffwater, that includes discretionary global macro strategies and systematic global macro strategies. But I also have a pretty good grasp of all of the relative value strategies as well. And there's a lot of overlap on the discretionary side with the, with the arbitrage managers as well. Sure. On the Guinness record side, I'm lucky enough to have broken eight Guinness records for long distance running, for treadmill running, for beer drinking, for stair climbing, and subway riding. Fantastic. That's, that's <laughs> awesome. Adam, I noticed that you were trading liability in the early part of your career. I'm not totally sure what that really means, but it sounds exciting. Tell us about that and how you moved on from there. I started out as a um, Fed funds trader at PNC Bank in Pittsburgh, and it was a great place to kind of cut your teeth and learn how to how markets work and how trading desks function. And I met my future wife there. She trained right. me. She was a she was a brilliant short term interest rate trader. And from there, the progression started. And after business school, I went to J.P. Morgan, where I did interest rate and FX derivatives for a long time was in sort of structuring and I traded, structured and did sales uh, there. It was a good, good experience. And I spent a couple of years at Credit Suisse doing sort of FX option structuring. And then after that, I left and sort of stumbled into Cambridge Associates. And it was a very sort of serendipity kind of thing. It was one of these conferences and my old boss said, hey, you should, you should talk to this guy, Adam. And 
I was literally on my way to another interview and uh, he says, I know this is crazy, but would you like to come to Boston? And I had wanted to get into research and one thing led, led to another. And I ended up in a very similar position as Chris, looking at systematic strategies, discretionary macro, and all of the sort of quant-related strategies. And that's that's been an amazing experience. And now I run the quant research at Cambridge Associates, which is trying to get us into the predictive modeling business a little bit and see if there's ways that we can be more efficient about our decision-making. Sure. Great, fantastic. How about you, Freeman? As far as I recall, you have a very interesting path to where you are today, which includes trading on the floor in Chicago. Share with us the road that led you to immersion. Sure, it's been a long road, a lot of different things. Uh, I started, as you said, uh, as a floor trader a market maker at the CBOE in early 1987. So I got to build up a nice, nice long uh, position, a short volatility position right into the crash. So I got to experience uh, market volatility at, uh, at a very interesting time. And that really informed sort of my career path. I spent uh, most of my career in risk management roles, trading risk management, corporate risk management for Ford Motor Company for a number of years with the Federal Reserve for six years on Wall Street with uh, Bank Paribas for a number of years, again, trading risk management, and then ended up at a hedge fund of funds and then Mercer most recently. I've been with Mercer for about eight years now, and I head up a group that's a bit different than my colleagues here. It, it focuses on sort of the operational aspects, the transactional cost, the control structure and governance structure of investment managers. So when you think about the, the, the function of trying to generate alpha and all the great work that consultants do and help clients think about, and we sort of focus on the alpha protection side or, or minimizing that erosion from operational and transaction costs. Sure. Fantastic. Great. Thanks for sharing that. Oh, and I've got to one other thing. I'm, I'm, an, I'm now an inspiring beer drinking record holder because I didn't know there was a record for that. I'm definitely going to try and get that. Excellent. Good. It's, it's nice to have big goals. <laughs> now, today we will cover a number of uh, different topics that I think many investors and managers have to deal with in their day-to-day -day work to find out how investors can benefit from your services, but also how managers need to understand your role and how they should interact with you. Maybe to kick it off, I could come to you, Freeman, first, and maybe you can describe the role of the consultant in today's world and, and how you interact with investors on one side and managers on the other side. And that's a great question. I think that it's changed quite a bit over the last few years. It's definitely more of a partnership, I would say, with clients and with managers. I think understanding the various managers and what's important to them, their strategies, their, their, their approaches and sort of how they structure themselves and deliver value to clients is, is as important as, as understanding your clients as well and the changing needs of those. So I think the consultant role has changed. I think it focuses on bringing those two sort of constituents together in the most effective way possible. The, the sort of the proliferation of, of different types of strategies, the different approaches that managers take, and how client demand has changed over, over the last 10 or 15 years really has has required a sort of a knowledge of both sides and trying to fit those pieces together in the most effective way. Sure. No, absolutely. And whilst we're on this theme, Adam, what are the classical challenges that you meet in your work with dealing with institutional investors? Oh, I think there's lots of challenges. It depends on the, the type of institution and lots of folks are under tremendous pressure from all different sources. And these pressures are real and and quite salient to the clients. And, and they're often difficult barriers to cross when you're trying to, you know, sort of make good decisions about portfolios. There's education that needs to be done and there's sometimes differences in time horizon where people would like to be long-term investors and act like long-term investors, but the realities and the pressures that are put on them 
by various committees and constituents makes it a much shorter game. And this can confound the kinds of things that you're trying to do for, for the portfolio. And so I think part of the consultant's role is to understand that, try to keep things as closely aligned as possible to the long-term view, but still sort of recognize that there are these, these near-term pressures. And that that is the most difficult thing. I think some of the the behavioral biases that creep in and, you know, the actual raw nuts and bolts of the portfolio and the, and the management stuff, a lot of that stuff is, in my view, much easier than resolving some of the behavioral mm-hmm. issues that we encounter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, before we move on to some of the more specific points, Chris, perhaps you could talk a little bit about how the role of the consultant may have changed now that there are so many more institutional investors coming into the space compared to maybe 10 years ago, Mm. and also maybe as a result of the financial crisis. How did that impact, you know, how they use consultants perhaps and and the amount or or the level they use consultants? Yeah. Well, Cliffwater, we are an alternative investment consultant. So we have three lines of business, hedge fund advisory, private equity advisory, and real asset advisory. I work on the hedge fund advisory side. And I think the real service we can provide is we are an extension of our client's research department Mm. because a lot of them hire us because they just simply don't have time to come to the MFA and contacts and have dozens of meetings. So this week I have 64 meetings planned. And big picture, there are 10,000 hedge funds, but there are only hundreds that perhaps are institutional quality that the biggest public pension plans could realistically invest in. So our job on the research side, and we divide the the world into five different hedge fund strategies. We have long-short equity, long-short credit, event-driven, relative value, multi-strategy, and global macro, which is is my group. So my job, as well as the other sector heads, is to be on top of the whole world of global macro. Mm. And we strive to find the very best in breed. Uh, We find the up-and-comers, and we find the ones that perhaps need a little more seasoning. And then we present to our clients, which we think are the, are the very best, and we can save their time. So in that sense, we're an extension of their, their research sure, department. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, just a comment on that. I think that's a great point. But the sort of the spectrum of services that consultants provide has really changed quite a bit. It used to be providing advice and helping select managers, for example. Now it's everything from tools for investors to use on their own, all the way through to delegated or outsourced CIO, uh, where where the consultants are actually taking on the governance structure and the decision making for it, and and I think consultants now have to sort of span that whole gap or a whole spectrum and provide an array of services that adds value, no matter where the client wants to be on that spectrum. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And you'll see you'll see some of the very biggest institutions might have four or five different consultants. They'll have a general consultant, they'll have a hedge fund specialist, they'll have a private equity, real estate, etc. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Right. Let's move on and take a look at the role of the consultant from a manager's point of view. I think a lot of CTAs, since we are doing managed futures this week, are frustrated by two issues in particular. The historical small, relatively small allocation to managed futures that consultants seem to have had when they make recommendations to institutional investors, and also that consultants seem to have a preference for only the very large managers. Adam, why don't you talk about how you view the role of managed futures in a portfolio when you advise your clients and what would be a reasonable allocation to this space in your opinion? Mm. It's a good question and something that comes up a lot. And I think, you know, managed futures is a is a big, as a broad brush. There are many, many types of sub-strategies within managed futures. And I think 
some of those are more useful at the start than others. And we try to be careful about how we categorize them. For example, trend following, which is sort of the bedrock in, uh, of, of managed futures, is very good and very healthy for a lot of our clients' portfolios, in particular, heavy equity portfolios and heavy credit portfolios. These things tend to have big left tails and skew benefits of trend following and the divergent nature of trend following is something that can have a very quick impact. It's a very good and healthy addition to a portfolio that basically just tries to make the return distribution of the total portfolio a bit more symmetric, which we think is better for sort of long-run wealth compounding. So, so trend following is a natural first move when you kind of look at the chessboard, which is the portfolio. And then, you know, sort of beyond that, there's lots of, there's lots of strategies that are just sort of absolute return type strategies. Basically, you know, I give you money, you make money with it. And there's, there's you know, no end to the types of strategies and we find those quite attractive as well. And so, so when you think about like optimal allocations to something like trend or whatever, you can do simulation starting with different you know, portfolios to start with and you can sort of let the computer try to decide how much of, of, of this does it want. And it, it, you actually get some pretty interesting results and the allocations tend to be much higher than what people are actually doing. Yeah. So I always giggle a little bit when people say, how much of this uh, should we do? And the answer is, well, how much can you do? Because the, the what you're thinking is probably much lower than what the optimal answer is. So I always can encourage people to do as much as you think that your committee and your, your constituents can, can take and try to treat it as a permanent allocation and not not obsessed about trying to, you know, to time it. And, 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 and where do you normally see people land in terms of percentages when, when you you know, give them that choice. Well, I think it goes anywhere from, you know, two and a half percent to just kind of get a toe in the water, which is going to be largely ineffective right. in, in trying right. to change the return distribution up to as high as 10% of the total. <laughs> and if you think about, you know, hedge fund allocations in total don't tend to be that large as part of the total, right? It's like 25% or less. But some of the more aggressive things could be up to half of that right. being in, in managed futures or something. Sure, sure. And, and Chris and Freeman, I mean, do you agree with Adam on, on these or do you have a different approach uh, to this? We agree. At, at Cliffwater, we have a 20% allocation to macro. Okay. Roughly. I think the biggest benefit of managed futures and with macro in general is that, as Adam mentioned, it's the the, the divergent nature of it. When you look at most hedge fund strategies, 80%, 90%, they're value biased. Mm. Whether it's long short equity, they're buying low and selling high. Whether it's merger arm, whether it's credit, whether it's distressed, you're buying low. Mm. And I think that's the, the beautiful premise of CTAs and momentum is that it's the exact opposite and it has the positive skew. So it's very, very beneficial, almost sight unseen with any portfolio. That's right. I would say you could probably add a 5% allocation at least to a CTA and it would improve your distribution characteristics, improve your Sharpe ratio, not only your numerator, probably your denominator as well. So I think that's the premise and we all know that. And I think the challenge has been that the numbers haven't been there for since 2008. 2008 was a great year for CTAs and you know we've had nine years now, eight years of underperformance and that presents a big challenge. We know that yeah. theoretically the, the possibility is there mm. and we saw a little glimmer of it in 2014. Mm but we've had these runaway bull markets and we haven't had to hedge. So people 
haven't really felt the need to. Mm. And I think that's it's that's really the, the contemporary issue right now mm. with why allocations have been low. Sure. I would agree with you in general, but I think it's important to think about what clients' needs are. Uh, that's really sort of the driver of, of the decision making. What is their risk appetite and what portfolio construction is important to them? How much do they value risk adjusted return versus just chasing return? Right. Each client is different, and that I think that drives a lot of decision making about where to where to, to put your money. Diversification is, is an important aspect of, of good portfolio management. And for those reasons, this asset class makes sense. But again, it depends on what a client is, is searching for. But back to your earlier question about sort of where clients put money, if you think about where large asset pools existed 10 or 15 years ago, there were large pensions, some large endowment foundations, basically large retirement assets. People had a very different view on what was important to invest in, and that drove a lot of decision. I think that 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 has changed quite a bit in in asset classes like CTAs and, and others, hedge funds becoming more interesting for all the reasons that we've talked about. So I think the world is changing, but the mindset of the big decision makers, the people who have very large pools of assets, is still fairly conservative. And I think that needs to change over time. How do we bridge the gap then between what the investors, as you said, can stand or can you know can allocate and what you as, as experts actually recommend them to do? I mean, how do we bridge that gap? Well, I think, so one thing I would want to point out is something that Freeman touched on there, and I think it's important, is that not every investor agrees that diversifying away from sort of the equity premium is a good idea. And I ran into, you know, I've run into this situation like, well, you know, of course you would want to diversify and of course you would want to add, you know, these things and increase the sharp ratio of the portfolio. And not everybody agrees with that. And it was sort of a head scratcher for me. And I was like, why are, why are people bristling at these things that I thought were just sort of foregone conclusions Mm -hmm. that every, you know, sort of finance person would agree with. And it took me a while to kind of, you know, think about, okay, like the portfolios that people are holding are probably an optimal solution. I just don't understand what the problem is that they've solved. Exactly. And so when I went back and I think of what is that portfolio the optimal solution to? If you think about it, if you view yourself as having permanent capital and an infinite time horizon, that portfolio will give you the highest terminal wealth. And to Freeman's point, I think that's the way a lot of people view themselves. And I think that the tricky part of that is, is that when when the bullets start flying and the chips are down, many people sort of overestimate the extent to which they are this eternal, what I call the eternal investor. Mm. As long as you stick to it and don't blink along the way, you will achieve the highest terminal wealth. Mm. But if things get bumpy and you blink, you probably would have been better off diversifying and doing some of these other things. But it's funny you say that, um, and this is just sort of something that comes to mind when you say it, because when you look at the manager level, the managers who've actually had the most success in raising assets are the ones who have diversified and become super smooth and no big risk, while the ones who've actually stayed true to their original strategy, say trend following, where there is volatility, but where we know their Mm. absolute returns will be the best over time, other ones that actually have been maybe not growing as, as, as fast as the other ones. So it's funny that investors on one side yeah. can think like that, but then when they have to select the managers, oh, they'll take the one that yeah. looks. I, I, just, I guess my point is, is that it, don't be so quick to conclude that these are crazy portfolios or that, that those are 
those are the optimal solution to a problem that's just slightly yeah. different than what you and, might and think. A lot of, it depends on what your what your benchmark is. If your yeah. benchmark is the guy next door or the or the or the endowment down the road mm -hmm. or you know the other corporate pension plans, and they're overweighted equities, right. in the last few years you look dumb, and uh, you don't want to look dumb. Uh, so it's it's really important to understand what the drivers of the decision maker are. I think, you know, when you think about theoretically, a strong risk-adjusted return is great. But when you're getting beaten handily by overweighted to one asset class, it changes the decision-making a little bit. Yeah. And maybe not optimally, but that, that's the that's yeah, These are the real-world pressures that these folks are seeing. Like, your peer group performance matters exactly. to these folks. Their compensation, their careers, and there's lots of those things that, are, that don't show up in your model of the portfolio. That are important, and so yeah, high sharp ratio is great, subject to staying competitive, you know, competitive with my peer group, group, and subject to all these other constraints, which is a difficult problem. And, and also, each line item is becoming more and more important, yeah. which is part of the problem of diversification, because diversification truly is the only free lunch in finance. Hmm. Yet, when we start to scrutinize weekly returns and we start to scrutinize every line item, I'm surprised to see many managers not being taken up on their twenty ball share class. Because ideally, if I'm making a 20 investment portfolio, I would choose everything. Everything would be uncorrelated mm -hmm. or ideally negative correlated to each other, have a positive expected value over time. And I would choose the largest share class for the cheapest price I could get per unit of vol. I would have 20 vol funds. And I think everyone knows that in, the, in their heart when, they, when they've studied finance. And in practice, we're very concerned because a 20 vol fund or even a 10 vol fund can can have down 10 years, can have down 10 months. That's all within expectations over, over the long-term time horizon. And now this focus on weekly and monthly performance. You know, when you, when you look back, it's interesting, when you look back 20 years ago, when you look back 30 years ago, the macro funds of the day, you were lucky to get a quarterly statement, you know, yeah. an annual statement. You didn't get monthly letters. And they were able to pursue a more pure strategy, which was high ball, because classic macro, maybe has one or two or three big moves a year, and you make all your money in one week, maybe one day, but certainly one month. So it would be very, very choppy. And I think what's happened in the macro space, really in the hedge fund space, is that hedge funds themselves are starting to diversify. Mm -hmm. Every multi-strategy fund right. started out as a convert arm fund 20 years ago, and they add on the credit, and slowly but surely they add on everything so that their offering is robust on, on its own. Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily what we want, mm -hmm. theoretically. But it is what we want if we're concerned about every line item. Mm -hmm. So it's it's tough. I think everyone is kind of contributing to the problem, and I think mm -hmm. we collectively also have the answers to the solution to investment problems as well. Yeah. But it just takes people to to sort through this on an individual bespoke basis. Sure. sure. Yeah. Maybe we'll come back to that point about transparency. What effect it's had generally on volatility and things like that. In terms of the perception that clients have of managed futures, I remember sort of 26, seven years ago when I started in this business, trend followers and, and CTAs in general, it was a black box. Has, has that perception changed from the institutional investor's point of view? I mean, do they, do they see it differently today and, and, and how do they actually see it? Well, I mean, I think that there is definitely, there's been some papers actually recently about algorithm aversion and you can see it in the allocations. There's a clear predisposition to invest in humans rather than machines. Mm. And, and I've thought about this. I mean, I've been a quant for my, my whole life, I guess. And that's very strange to me. But on the other hand, I stopped and think about that. You know, it's, and think about getting into a driverless car. 
Mm-hmm. That's a very unnatural thing for me to do. Yet I know that that driverless car is highly accurate in its driving, but it still feels incredibly unnatural to me. And I just don't know, given the way you know we've grown up, yeah. if I'm ready to let go of the wheel. And there's lots of examples of this where machines are able to do things better than we can do, yet we still feel this kind of reluctance to sure. do it. It's funny when you say that. When you, when, what you hear of in a driverless car is is when it fails, right? Right. Um, exactly. And the failure rate is so much lower than right. you know regular drivers. But you hear everybody talk about that one fail. Correct. Uh, similarly, when you have a flash crash or some you know, problem with a high frequency trader, you hear about that, and you don't hear about all the successes that 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 approach uh, has over time. So people are very sensitive. Yeah. And plus, when we hear there's been a, an accident from you know in an airline, it's yeah. usually pilot error. It's yeah. not necessarily that's right. That's autopilot, right. right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. Oh, sorry. I mean, that's it. People never lose confidence in themselves. Yeah. It's the plight of the human condition. Yeah, that's right. It's that we hold algorithms and computers to a much higher standard. Yeah. yeah. But that's changing. Okay. It's slowly changing. Yeah. yeah. I think that's true. I think people are getting much more comfortable in in not just in managed futures, but broadly more right. um, complicated asset classes. You're having more faith in the process and the technology mm-hmm. and the thesis and the people that run it. So I think that's changing. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And there, there are all kinds of strange examples of this. So people uh, say, oh, yeah, it's too complicated. I don't know. Like trend following is perhaps the most simplistic algorithm that you can imagine. And I look at what's in people's portfolios and I think about some of the private deals that they have and the, the sheer complexity of those transactions is just, it's mind-numbing. I, I think that's, that's a really good point is, is that when you, when you see the complexity of a private tra- transaction yeah. and the lack of transparency mm-hmm. valuation and the people and all the drivers the of liquidity. value uh, compared to a, a futures fund where, where everything's very transparent, you get <laughs> daily views into it, you start looking at well, what is more complex? You know, the, the algorithm or you know the guy signing the agreement to lend money to somebody you've never seen before. Right. I, I agree. I mean, I tell people, I say, look, if if the price today is above where it used to be, we're long, and if it's below, we're short. That's pretty much it. Right. Yeah. And um, at its heart, that's kind of, you know, the rest is all just sort of so how do we improve? I mean, how do we improve this reputation or perception or whatever we call it? I mean, how do we help? I think it's slowly changing. Twenty-five years ago, it was a black box because mm. people didn't want to talk about the ten-day over a hundred-day moving average. Mm. And today, the pendulum has swung, and with the rise of risk premia and the low fee trend, mm. it's almost been a commoditized product. Mm. Like we know that this is what you get. This is how you capture the momentum premia, and it's cheap. Mm. So I think people are understanding the properties more, and I think that's why we've seen the rise in 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 low fee trend fall. Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely come and 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 talk more about that. Let's move on to one of the other big questions that is on many managers' mind when it comes to consultant, and that is this perceived preference for very large managers. I want to start by saying that I'm not going to suggest that big is bad and small is good. After all, in life, we want big opportunities rather than small and small problems instead of big problems. So there is no fixed rule here. However, we do have some evidence that big being the preference of consultants and institutions since, according to hedge fund research, 6% of all hedge funds control 68% of total assets which is in fact up from 61% in 2009. In fairness, I don't know what each of your manager selection criteria is when it comes to CTAs. So why don't we start by sharing, you know, what's the smallest manager that you would 
allocate to? What does that look like? And you could talk whether it's many futures or other strategies, but give us some perspective on this. I mean, there are obviously some lower bounds. It's hard to put your finger on exactly. I mean, we've, we've been very early on a couple of ideas that are very large funds now, but at the time they were mostly just partner capital. It was $100 million or something. And it varies. And I think everything, it's a little more complicated than just to put a hard number. It's a more complicated assessment process than just saying, oh, 50 million, forget it. Mm. But I think the preference for large funds has some practical implications. For one, if the fund is only going to be you know, $500 million, we could easily end up being a large percentage of that. And that makes us sort of uncomfortable mm-hmm. being such a, such a large percentage of assets. I think there are also sort of some of these behavioral factors that get into it, right? So it's much, much easier to fail conventionally, right? And so if we all own this one and it goes down, well, we've all, we all own the big one. And so there's, there's sort of a hurting effect that happens around certain managers, which is this, I don't want to, you know, if I fail on some very tiny fund, that's going to be worse for me than if I fail and everybody else was in with me. So, so these things all kind of conspire and it's not, there's, there's other things that show up when you sort of test this in the data, which is that it's not totally, some of the stories about size and performance are very convenient, coherent mo- mental models, but actually don't aren't consistent with how the data shows up. I've talked to a number of people about the size versus performance aspect of things, and some people find an effect, some people find no effect. Mm-hmm. I actually find in certain strategy types that size is actually beneficial to performance and that the larger funds do slightly better. And there's, there's, re- there's reasonable reasons to, to think about that. So I think it's... You have to be a little bit careful about not falling prey to a convenient mental model about size. But I think that these things are are there. Yeah, I I think that's correct. I'm not sure it's so clear that smaller managers are better. I think you can find great small managers, but you can also find very good larger managers as well. I think one of the problems is is we've got a very large universe of managers. Where are you going to spend your time as as an investor or as a consultant? Typically, you want to find spend your time on something that's going to be sustained over time. Mm. Smaller managers, not necessarily as a universe, is going to be sustained. Some of them will succeed, some of them will fail. Medium-sized managers, larger managers tend to be more stable, so you tend to invest a little more time there, which drives that effect a little Mm. bit. From our perspective, we do uh, the operational reviews, Mm. operational due diligence, a wide spectrum of managers, from a one- to two-person shop all the way to, you know, 10, 20, 30 billion dollar shops. And so we see that that spectrum. And it's always interesting to see that the smaller managers, I think investors are afraid that they're not institutional, they're not safe, they don't have the safeguards that a large one does. And, and certain small managers, you definitely see that. However, we see a number of small managers who are actually really well structured. Mm-hmm. They take that, that very seriously. They've instituted a level of controls that you would expect at a much larger manager either through outsourcing arrangements or other structural ways. Mm-hmm. And that, that transparency, that level of control really gives institutional investors a lot of comfort to invest with a small manager. And that, that makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. What do you see, Chris? I agree. The survivorship bias is very, very real. Mm-hmm. And I think that is one reason we often hear the story that smaller managers outperform. But in practice, I haven't necessarily seen it. Mm-hmm. But we look at the whole spectrum. Mm. At Cliffwater, about a quarter of our managers that are approved are under a billion dollars. We've done a lot of day one investments. We look at a lot of the smaller managers and we hope to start a relationship to grow with them as they get bigger. Mm. So we've we've really looked at, at, at the spectrum. I think one big hurdle rate for, I think that we have very mature portfolios now. 
today, mm. 2017. So the hurdle rate for a smaller manager to be that much better than a big manager that's already in a portfolio is very great. Mm. And there are not that many programs now that are looking to completely expand and double. In 2006, I think we were at one and a half trillion dollars in the hedge fund industry. Today, we're at three. By the end of the year, I think perhaps we'll grow a little bit, but we're not going to be doubling at that type of exponential rate. So I think the hurdle rate just becomes that much harder mm. for, for smaller managers because a lot of these guys got in the game very early, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, when there was a big ramp up in hedge fund assets. Sure, sure. I, I would just add to that. I think it's absolutely right. And when you think about what is the edge in the manager's you know, process or whatever they're doing, and in a lot of these cases, the edge is the multiple years of technology spend that they've accumulated. If you're spending 10, 50 million dollars a year, whatever it is, for 10 years, the the quality and integrity of your system is just much larger than what a startup can do or what a new fund mm. can do. Mm. That's part of your edge. Mm. Right? You can't just, you know, put up your shingle and have and compete with people who have, you know, 10 or 15 years of a hundred million dollar a year tech investment. That's that's not going to happen. Mm. I think um, that's, that's that's a really good point. You look at yeah, a different industry, but you think of transition managers and transition assets for, for clients. The edge comes from execution efficiency, and they spend a lot of money and a lot of time right. being very efficient at execution. And they've done that over a long period of time. Uh, you, you, you can use that same analogy to smaller managers investing in any asset class. Yeah. Execution efficiency doesn't necessarily mean technology, but it can. But it's how quickly they execute their ideas uh, or get out of their ideas it can be a big edge. And that comes oftentimes some time and, and, and spending money and spending and, and getting that expertise over time. Exactly. And one more point on this. If your edge is in fundamental stock picking, I think you can make us you can make an argument that you are smarter than everyone else. Hmm. You and your two research analysts are, are simply just so good at stock picking or fundamental analysis. I think it's nearly impossible for two guys to say that their systems are better when we have such high barriers to entry, the R and D has been built up over years and years and years. Execution costs play into it, right. and the trend following model is so mature that it's very, very difficult to come in and say, "I have a better long term trend following model than these guys that have 25 years of experience." Right. I think you can have an edge with with, with short term models, with with more high frequency trading models, mm. with different types of models. But I think with, with the mature industry, it's a lot tougher to break in, sure, sure. especially when chart ratios are under one. I mean, we talked a little bit, of, focused a little bit on, on the AUM side, but clearly there are more filters that you would use in order to get the universe down. I mean, what are some of the other main things that you that you look for when, when trying to get your universe narrowed down? Well, one of the things is what Freeman mentioned. I spend a lot more time focusing on execution intelligence than I do spending on the models or the algorithms or the alpha engine, if you will. I think that the best alpha engine out there can just be swamped by poor execution and that you get as much or more out of smart execution as you do out of your alpha model. And actually, uh, in my view, quite simple models with very just simple insights paired with good, pl good plumbing and good plumbers, <laughs> I think is uh, a better bet often than betting on an alpha model. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. I mean, the, the plumbing is matters, right? And it matters for a lot of reasons. One, from in terms of execution capabilities, cost efficiencies, but also the control structure. 
a good infrastructure means they're more robust, they're more sustainable. And, and when you're an investor, particularly in the, the types of investors that we deal with, longer term investors, you want sustainability. And sustainability comes from a good thesis, but it also comes with a good control structure, a good environment. And, and I think that's why uh, consultants, all of us, spend much more time thinking about the infrastructure, even a very smaller managers, how well are they structured uh, and how does that contribute to sustainable returns over time. I think the key to any business is having a repeatable process. And I think consultants and asset allocators are no different. So when we look at our investment due diligence components, we try to use the same criteria for every single hedge fund across every single strategy. And over time, we build up what we think are the keys to looking at these strategies. And I would break it broadly into four parts, into organizational, investment process, governance, and performance. And on the work side, we look at business stability, we look at personnel, we meet everyone who, who is important in the firm. On the investment process, we are looking for a repeatable process. We're looking at their strategy, um, their portfolio construction, we're looking at risk management. On the governance side, we're looking at fees and expenses, fund liquidity, transparency, different trade-offs. And finally, performance is important, but it's only a small part of it. Um, we're looking at alpha versus beta, their peers and different risks embedded in their performance. Mm -hmm. And I think when we put this all together, we, we come up with a picture for how we feel about that manager and ultimately it's rating. And, and speaking of that, because obviously there's a lot of aspiring managers listening to our conversation today, hoping to be the next one on your recommended list. I mean, what, what's a red flag? Where, where does it quickly become evident for you that, no, we're not going to, you know, we don't have to spend too much time here because there are certain things that are just not, they're not ready or they're not seasoned uh, enough or whatever it might be. Where do you look for that sort of? Mm. I think to what we were just talking about, if we, if you go into a manager and they are really excited about their thesis and their approach, but they have no appreciation for, again, the plumbing or the, or the control structure, that's a big red flag because they are they are so enamored with their, their strategy or their approach that they're neglecting the pieces that, as we've talked about, can really contribute to sustainability over time. So that's, for, from our perspective at least, and I'm sure our colleagues would say the same, is that you know they have to have a, the bigger picture of how you run a business, not mm -hmm. just you know how do you invest directly. Yeah. I would agree. I think, you know, it's hard to say what the red flag is because sometimes, you know, different things come up that give you pause. I tend to like people who have sort of both feet on the ground, which is a little bit nebulous thing to say, but just in talking to them, you can kind of get a sense if people are comfortable with, with what the models can do and what they can't do mm -hmm. and are just sort of well-grounded in terms of what they think they can achieve. I think it's dangerous when people think, you know, that, that they're... There's also, yeah, exactly. there's also a bit of myopic tendencies where... People tend to think that they're the only one doing this, or they're the only one who's discovered this, or that you know this is super unique. And in most cases, that's that's probably not the case. In some cases, there is. Uh, it is true, but those are generally red flags. As I, as I mentioned, you know the the extrapolation of historical experience, you know, broadly into the future, is a little bit dangerous in my mind because market microstructure has evolved so much over the years that. For me, I like to see that people have an appreciation for the way that markets and market microstructure in particular have evolved. And that if you're, if you're over extrapolating experiences that were dependent on a different market structure, that's a little bit cause for pause for me. Sure, sure. So now we've talked about the manager, the red flags, but how, how, do the, how 
do you recommend investors should access these managers? Because clearly there could also be some concerns about, you know, in the old days, you know, a managed account was kind of full transparency, little counterparty risk, et cetera, et cetera. Then came the funds and they became more popular, but there you have certain criteria in terms of how they're structured, service providers, et cetera, et cetera. Are there anything there managers should be aware of when they put together their products in order to be institutional grade? Again, investors are concerned about transparency and how they get to understand what's happening at the manager. So anything that a manager can do to um, provide that transparency, to make them comfortable with how, how they generate alpha, how they control risk uh, is, is important. I think that there's a lot of ways to provide that either, you know, either through transparency or administration of funds or separately managed accounts. But I think having that flexibility to deliver what a client wants, what an investor wants is, is important. And then, as we talked about before, making sure that investors understand that that a manager is, is institutional in that um, they've got good controls, a good process, and that they've been vetted externally, either through external providers or other types of internal controls. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Roundtable. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable.